0: 2, 15 through 20, and Romans 5, 1 through 8. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I try to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, we are now in the third week of our Immerse Messiah series, which is taking us through the entire New Testament in eight weeks. Um, And I realize that sounds like a lot, but hopefully you've already kind of gotten a glimpse in these first couple weeks of how helpful it can be to get more of that big picture, comprehensive view of the whole story because it really is a whole story, right? Rather than just ever zooming into the details. Um, I say that with a little tongue in cheek because we will zoom into the details a little bit this morning, but it's important for us to recognize that all of scripture is truly one long story, right? And the New Testament in particular is the story of God's revelation in the person of Jesus Christ and about how he has completely upended and redeemed and redefined everything we thought we knew down to the very core of who we are as human beings so i don't know if you have noticed this in your reading yet either in these last couple weeks or just over the course of your lifetime as a christian but jesus is captivating right he's enthralling he was so unassuming in his physical presence and his demeanor but he did things that no one expected and he said things that even today we are wrestling with and trying to make sense of but there was something about him he drew people to himself right not just through his miracles and his teaching uh, though those certainly got people's attention but also just through his overwhelming kindness and his radical welcome of all people. Right? There was something special about him. And the disciples saw it and recognized it. And then the people who started hearing his story from the disciples saw and recognized it. And still today all around the world we have people asking, "Who is this man? Like how do I get to be in relationship with him? What does it mean to be a Christian?" So that's the question that I want to pose to all of you this morning. What does it mean to be a Christian? Think about it for a moment. We kind of take for granted our answers to that sometimes, but what does it mean to be a Christian? Who gets to be a Christian? How do you know you're really a Christian? Right, these are the sorts of questions that the churches and the early church were wrestling with as this story of Christ was being written. Ever since Jesus showed up on this earth, people have wondered, what does it all mean? And so that's part of why we have this incredible testimony, because people were hungry for answers about Jesus. And his story, once it got out, it just exploded all across the Roman Empire. So that's why Luke wrote his gospel to Theophilus, trying to explain who on earth this man was. And then he wrote the Acts of the Apostles, and the stories of the early church to talk about the impact that Jesus continued to have after his resurrection and ascension. And it's why Paul wrote so many of the letters that we now have to the churches that he would go and start that we are going to be reading about in these coming weeks. And so we heard a little bit of Paul's story in our intro video. But in terms of Jesus' impact, I think Paul might be the most surprising or profound change that we see in the New Testament story, and you may have read about this a little more in Acts last week, but Paul uh, originally went by his Jewish name Saul, and he was a Pharisee in Jerusalem. So He was someone who knew the law, the Jewish law, to the letter, who kept it to the letter, And he, after Jesus' ascension, was persecuting early Christians who had these claims about Jesus. And he was rounding people up and throwing them into prison. He was there the day that they stoned Jesus' follower Stephen to death. He was ruthless until one day that he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to the city of Damascus. And it completely changed his life. And he went all of a sudden from Jesus' harshest critic to his biggest champion all throughout the Roman Empire. And he started traveling and planting churches in places like Syria and Galatia and Ephesus and Corinth, these cities that we saw in our video. He was teaching people about Jesus, about the life-changing impact that Jesus had. And people were eager to hear it, right? Jews and Gentiles alike, they wanted to know what this good news was and this relationship with Christ what that looks like but as you can imagine it was also a lot to take in and to understand right Jesus is in some ways not very straightforward this story of the gospel challenges a lot of things that we know and even though they believed in Jesus and this great story that they were being told They also had to still go about their everyday lives and interact with people and systems and things that would have been telling a different narrative to them. They, in many cases, existed as the religious minority in their homes. And, you know, we may know a little bit about what that feels like when you have friends and neighbors and even uh, political and economic systems that are just teaching different things about what is true and what is most important. And so, They even had other Christians who were giving them mixed messages on occasion, or sometimes they were making assumptions about what this good news of Jesus meant that were leading them astray. And so Paul began to write to them to clear these things up. What does it mean to be a Christian? Right? How does it work? Who does it include? How does it change the way that we live? And so when Paul wrote to the churches in the province of Galatia, the main point of tension that he was addressing was with this group of people that we now call the Judaizers. Right? These were Jewish Christians who started teaching that it was only possible to be Christian if you also followed the Jewish law given by Moses and so essentially if you wanted to follow Christ you had to convert more or less to Judaism and you had to be a law-abiding Jew and you can see why this would have been a problem for Paul right like he had spent his entire life dedicated to trying to live out the law of Moses but it hadn't brought him salvation it led to a really really diligent following of the rules but it hadn't actually led to a softening or a change of his heart Only Christ was able to do that. And that's what he had taught them. And this is actually, this book of Galatians, one of the only one of Paul's letters where we see him addressing the church, not with his customary heartfelt thanksgiving toward them, but with frustration. And so he opens by saying grace and peace to you in his greeting. But then immediately he says, I'm so shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Jesus Christ. You're following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Right? He's angry because they were being shackled back to the demands of this law when Christ had come precisely to set them free. Right? No one could fulfill the law perfectly except jesus and he already had we aren't saved by keeping the law paul says we're saved by the reconciling work of christ in his death and resurrection that is it he's already done what we have been unable to do on our own but the galatians were not the only ones that had questions about the law and this relationship particularly between jews and gentiles So when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, again, it was to a church that he did not found, but a church that he hoped to visit at some point. Um, And he wanted to have them understand the heart of the gospel. Because there were people there also asking, what does it mean to be a Christian? How does faith work? Right. So Paul is writing to them about the brokenness of our human condition And the world he's talking about how we have been slaves to sin and cut off from this perfect relationship with god and it's through christ that we have been saved he says we've been made right in god's sight by faith we have peace with god because of what jesus christ our lord has done for us this isn't a peace that is earned it's a free gift of god's grace available to everyone. I mean, that's what's so radical about Jesus, right? He welcomes everyone, everyone, even us. Grace and freedom and peace and salvation, getting to stand in God's presence without fear of judgment, getting to be part of God's family, none of it is earned. It is just a gift. No matter who you are, there's nothing that you can do to be more or less worthy of God's love. And if we try to add any requirements onto the work of Jesus on the cross, we've missed the point. Believing that and trusting that has always been a struggle for God's people. That God might love us without us doing anything to deserve it. We have a hard time with that. I mean, even up through the history of the church, it's been a struggle because humans are so good at trying to add our own goodness to the equation, to want to feel like we have earned God's approval. Whether we're putting expectations on ourselves or on other people, we want to say, I deserve this, I've earned this. I mean, everything else about our system says that's what you have to do, right? You have to prove yourself. And this is a completely different story. In the 16th century, there was a monk named Martin Luther who was still wrestling with this, and you may know his name. He was wrecked day and night, even as someone who was a part of the church and a priest and a monk, that he hadn't prayed enough, that he hadn't confessed enough, that he hadn't done enough to be right with God. He had been taught that God's grace in Christ, by what Christ has done on the cross and his resurrection, that that allowed an infusion of grace that would uh, make space for us to be right over time if we were obedient to God. Right? Basically, he thought that God had opened the door of salvation, but that you had to make sure that you had done enough to cross the finish line. And that pressure was beginning to unravel him. He started to hate this righteous God who would offer just enough grace to start the journey but then no way of knowing if you ever actually made it. We know that feeling, right? Whether it is with our spiritual lives or at work or school or with our families, there's always more that you can do. There's always more than you can offer. And how do you ever know if you've done enough? It's very easy to feel like we are always falling short. But then one day, Luther read Paul's words again in his letter to the Romans. Not for the first time, he had read them before, but he read them again with fresh eyes and something clicked, right? This wasn't about the potential of being made right with God. This was about the reality of being made right with God. And that moment started the reformation of the entire church. Luther wrote, justification is not a change in man, but the gracious declaration of God by which he pronounces righteous, the sinner who in himself is not righteous. Luther started claiming that we are all sinners and saints, not one or the other, but both simultaneously. Right? It's not that God looks at us and sees someone who is trying so hard to be righteous that he says, all right, well, I suppose you're okay. Right? But that he sees us exactly as we are, <laughs> broken, sinful, in all of these ways that we try to hide ourselves from other people, and yet he chooses to count Christ's righteousness as our own. We are sinners by nature and saints only by the grace of God. And it's out of Luther's experience with Paul's letters that our Protestant church now has our emphasis on sola fide, which is faith alone, right? That we're saved not by our works or our obedience, but simply and entirely through faith. That was Paul's message all along. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means trusting that Jesus has already done what was necessary to make us right with God, to put us back into that perfect relationship where we are loved and accepted no matter who we are, so that we can then love and accept other people in the ways that Christ has done for us. Our salvation is freedom, and it allows us to live in the way that God intended. It's a gift that comes purely by grace through faith. But whose faith? Whose faith is it that makes salvation effective in our life? Is it my faith that makes me right with God? Do I have to have faith in order to be saved? I mean, these are questions I think we still wrestle with today. I mean, Paul seems to suggest as much when he says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But the problem is that that kind of still makes it sound like salvation is up to us, right? That faith is now the work that needs to be done in order for us to be saved, right? If it's up to me, how do I know if I have enough faith? Does it leave room for any doubt? What if I have questions about God? Something is confusing. Something's not sitting right with my experience. Or what if I believe something that turns out to be wrong? That I have faith in something that's misled. Does that put my salvation in jeopardy? You can see how understanding the work of Jesus is complicated, right? I mean, as far as I can tell, we don't usually have a problem Claiming or believing that we are saved or justified or made right with God, whatever the terminology we want to use, is by faith. But if someone doesn't have faith, does it mean that God doesn't actually see them with favor? Or that somehow Christ's work doesn't count for them yet? I don't actually think the church has consensus on this. <laughs> it's very complicated. And one of the reasons that it is so complicated is because we are trying to make sense of a story that was written 2,000 years ago in a very different language. I mean, we have to make some inferences about what Paul meant when he wrote these letters. I mean, this text that we just read in Galatians says, a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. But Paul's Actual expression here in the Greek is Pisteos Jesu Christu. Pisteos Iesu Christu. Pisteos is faith and Jesu Christu is Christ. But there's no word in between them, right? Nothing that clearly says faith in Christ. The only thing we have to determine the relationship between faith and Jesus Christ is the genitive case in Greek. And this is where I mentioned we'd be getting into a little bit of the details. So just bear with me for just two seconds. In the Greek language, this genitive case is used to indicate that a word is attached to something else, right? So somehow faith and Jesus Christ, they belong with one another in this sentence. And the genitive case can be used to show that something is the object of a preposition But often, it indicates that this word is the source or the possessor of something, right? And so all that is to say that this phrase that Paul uses, pisteos Iesu Christu, can be translated faith in Jesus Christ, or it could be translated the faith of Jesus Christ, with Christ being the source. Meaning that this verse could also be read A person is made right with God by the faith or faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It's such a minor detail, right? But you can see how it makes a huge difference. Whose faith or faithfulness is the active agent in our salvation? Is it ours or is it Christ's? Our Reformed tradition would say it's Christ. We have the gift of life because he is faithful not because we choose to believe. In fact, this is why we baptize infants before they're old enough to have faith on their own. right? Because we believe that Christ has already made us right before God. like It is done. And Christ then calls us to love even before we're aware of it. It's the same thing Paul told the early church in these letters. It's Christ and Christ alone who saves. <laughs> Or, as a former professor of mine once said, thank goodness God does not require us to have faith in our own faith. <laughs> right? I would not do so well. Right? But our, our faith still clearly plays an important role. I mean, Jesus himself said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Right? So we are still called to believe. In Christ, to trust that He is who He says He is, that all of this message of grace in the gospel actually is true. I mean, that's what this whole spread of the gospel in the early church was about, right? You are calling people to believe in this good news. So, what then is the role of our faith? There's a theologian named Robert McAfee Brown. He put it like this The gospel does not say, trust Jesus and He will love you. The gospel says, God already loves you, so trust him. Faith is not a work that saves us. It is our acknowledgement that we are saved. And that acknowledgement is still a very important piece, right? God gives us agency to accept his free gift of love or not. To believe in Christ or not. To let go of all of these merit systems that we like to build up to determine how good we are or not. It doesn't change whether or not God loves us, but it does actually change the course of our lives. Right? Imagine going your whole life believing that you were unlovable or that you were not measuring up. That would change not only how you see yourself and how you operate in the world, but how you treat other people. It changes everything it certainly changed Paul's life. He wrote, When I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law, stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Right. Paul was set free by this grace of God. He was no longer constrained by the standards and the requirements of the law or any other human system of worthiness because he knew that he was beloved, and no one could take that away from him, just like no one can take it away from you. Right. When we worry that our acceptance and our salvation are up to us, even regarding the level of our faith, we'll spend our entire lives struggling to measure up and requiring that other people around us do the same. But when we die to all of that, and be very clear, the call to follow Jesus is one to come and die to all of that, when we acknowledge that Christ's faithfulness has already had the final word, we can embrace that freedom and that hope that Paul is so passionate about. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we trust deep in our bones the one who tells us what is most true about ourselves, that we are loved and welcomed by God, redeemed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what. Thanks be to God for that. Let's pray. Lord, we don't deserve your grace. We try so hard to measure up to all of the definitions of good or successful, important, beautiful, all these labels that we want to bolster up our identity and tell us who we are. But at the end of the day, you have called us beloved, and that is the most important and most true thing about ourselves, that when you look at us, It's not that you don't see all of our brokenness. It's very clear. But more importantly, you see Christ's righteousness in our place so that we have a place in your family, so that we know that we are loved, so that we can live in an entirely different way that is free of fear. So, God, break our hearts open to hear that again today in whatever ways that we need. Help us to set down whatever it is that we are carrying. And to hold, to hold that truth that we are beloved in your sight. Thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.